When I was younger and had more time to devote myself to music and expanding my musical horizons, uh, I used to buy a lot of CDs. And for millennials out there, that's an ancient technology nowadays. I know you can just uh, use Spotify and live stream, but I still have a bunch of those up on my wall, and it reminds me of some of the great music I had more time to listen to when I was more eager and younger. But uh, for some reason this week, I've been thinking a lot about uh, Ella Fitzgerald because I bought a whole bunch of her records uh, because she was such a fantastic jazz singer. She died, I think, in the 1990s. She was such a great singer because she was a person who was able, just with the tone of her voice, to really communicate a lot uh, of the complexity of the song she was singing. Uh, she had that great timbre in her voice right up until the, her 70s when she continued uh, uh, performing and eventually retired, but just a voice where, where it never seemed to get uh, degraded in any way, but always was strong. But I remember particularly my favorite records were Ella Fitzgerald sings the Cole Porter songbook. And Cole Porter was a great songwriter, and there was one song I was thinking a lot this week. It's a song called, Why Can't You Behave? <laughs> and you can probably guess just from that title what it was all about. It's a song about a woman who falls in love with a man who says all the right things, who makes her grand promises, but keeps breaking them. And what that is is that uh, he, he spends too much money, he has wild nights, keeps coming back saying, forgive me, and I love you, and we'll settle down. And she knows in her heart of hearts she just cannot trust him, but she can't stop loving him. It's a powerful song, and the way she sings it just makes it really both heartbreaking and maddening, because you can kind of put yourself in the situation of saying, yeah, I kind of know what it's like to love a person, to be heartbroken by their behavior, and angry, but unable to let them go. I thought of that because I believe today's first lesson from Jeremiah, our lesson from the Old Testament, is really a biblical version of that thing Ella Fitzgerald was singing about. Israel, why can't you behave? And God, through the voice of Jeremiah, is saying, you're breaking my heart all the time. You make me pull out my hair in frustration, but I cannot leave you because I love you. And I want to speak to you about this because I think it's something that has perpetual uh, importance throughout the ages, not just for Israel, uh, you know, 2,500 or 2,600 years ago, but it also, I think, is how God's relationship to the church works, how God's relationship to us works, and ultimately an example for how our relationship to the world, our relationship to the church, and our relationship to our neighbors should work as well. To love people, to love institutions that break our heart and make us go nuts, but how we continue to love them because we are called to be people who love. Now I'm going to get into that in the nitty gritty, but I did want to say something just before I get into Jeremiah proper. You probably heard and you listened just as, as Judy was saying it, it does not start off on a very happy note, does it? And you may have noticed that, frankly, everything we've looked at in Jeremiah over the past few weeks does not start out or, frankly, end or, frankly, even in the middle have a very happy note, right? He starts off by saying, my joy is gone, grief is upon me, my heart is sick. Here's a person who's lamenting. And what's interesting is, is that you read through the Bible, lament comes up all the time. Jeremiah's full of lament. You read the book of Job, it's full of lament. He's sick, he doesn't know why, he's angry at God, and he's crying out about it. When you listen to Amos and the other prophets, when you listen to uh, um, the Psalms, you find it all the time. Why is this happening to me, O God? Have you forgotten your promises? Those sorts of things are come up all the time. And what's striking to me whenever I run across lament is how often it happens throughout the scriptures, and yet how rarely it's talked about in church. You know, when I grew up, uh, I, I grew up in many ways a really good church, so I don't want to bash it. One thing I do remember is, almost every time, no matter what the text was preached on, the songs were all happy ones, right? 
Maybe I got some problem, but I trust in Jesus. It's all going to be great. Thing is, is that so often you come to church and you know it. Yeah, Jesus loves me. You know objectively, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not starving. I'm not, not, you know, in terrible shape. I don't have cancer. I'm, I'm, I'm going, doing things fine. I got no reason to be really sad. And you come, as often as happened to me through my life, in a time of depression, you come and you think there's something wrong with me. Things are also happy here in church. Everybody's got a great smile on. Jesus loves us. Shouldn't we be happy? And you show up at church and feel down in the dumps. And you kind of feel like, oh, what a bad Christian I am. And you might say, oh, well, that's, that's those churches out there, you know, the happy, clappy churches. That's their problem. But, you know, one of the things that's really sad about the Anglican church and the way that we, we operate around Scripture is how rarely we actually hear laments. You know, the Psalms, as I mentioned, it's like probably a good solid half of them are either uh, lament because things are terrible or anger because somebody has done something wrong, angry at injustice. And yet... The lectionary, and I know I keep coming back and beating this drum, the, 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 the text that we're appointed each week to say in church and I'm to preach on, it skips over a lot of these things. Look at the Psalms 1 and 2, and all these things are really important Psalms, but then it skips over Psalm 6, which was one of the things that I often have read at times of my own uh, depression and sorrow. Uh, Psalm 6, verse 6, I'm weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears, and I drench my couch with, couch with my weeping. My eyes waste away because of grief. That is not an uplifting psalm, but it describes the situation we're often in. Psalm 88 is even more stark. It ends by saying, my friends have all turned against me, and darkness is my only companion. And that's how it ends. You think, oh, but Jesus is, okay, or God loves me, it's all okay. No, it doesn't. There are times in human life where, frankly, whether we have, you know, quote-unquote, a good reason or not, where life has beat us down, our heart is broken, something has happened, or maybe it's just something that's happened in the way we think, and we come, and we want to come to church, and we want to hear there is a God who loves us in our sorrow, there's a God who says it's okay to be sad. What we need to look at in the scriptures is to say, own these things when we're broken. Own it and say, you know what? I realize objectively Jesus loves me, but I just ain't feeling it. And it is okay to be like Jeremiah. It's okay to be like the psalmist. It's okay to be like Jesus who weeps when his friend Lazarus dies and says to Jerusalem, you know, how I, I long to gather you. And, and he weeps over Jerusalem. If Jesus on the cross cries out and says, God, why have you forsaken me? Do we not have permission to imitate the most perfect person who's ever lived and say, it's okay for me to be brokenhearted? If you're brokenhearted today, I'm really glad you're here. I'm glad you're here because you need to know that when you're brokenhearted, the church is exactly the place you need to be because here is someone who loves the brokenhearted and weeps with them when they can't see the light. And yes, promises hope, but sometimes that hope is just not able for us to be seen in the midst of darkness. And sometimes that hope, frankly, doesn't visit us in life in the way we want it, and we have to wait for the life to come before the true hope and joy that Christ promises comes true. So that's an important thing to note when we run into passages like this. You may be saying, what a downer. But remember, we all have downers, and it assures us it's okay. So let's get into the nitty-gritty here then. I'll tell you also, one of the things that's challenging about uh, the Bible, and it's particularly it comes clear in this passage in Jeremiah 8 is, you may not know, but in the, in the past, uh, in biblical times, although literacy occurred, you know, scribes could write, most people couldn't read and write. And that meant that oftentimes the only people that did the reading and writing scribes were well-trained. And so what they would end up doing, also because papyrus, which they wrote on, was expensive, they, hadn't, they didn't put spaces between their words. So right here it says, the sermon, 
Or you look at uh, one just before, uh, or one after. Do you believe in God the Father? Imagine that all the spaces are taken out, and it's all, do you believe in God the Father? And then it says, I believe, and then skips to the next line. That's how it would be in ancient Greek and ancient Hebrew. What's even more difficult is, is that they didn't have punctuation. There were no commas, no apostrophes, no paragraph starts, no uh, difference between capital and, and small. So you're looking at this giant text, and if you were looking at it, it would be one big splash full of letters. And you'd have to figure out, as a trained scribe, okay, this is where that word ends, the next word starts, da 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 Now, I want you to know all of that is not just so you score heavy on, uh, on trivia when you play Jeopardy. Why I mention this is because Jeremiah 8 is notoriously difficult to know who's talking, right? Because <laughs> it starts off, uh, and there's lots of different, different ways that, that we can interpret it. But I'm going to tell you what my interpretation is. And if you think I'm not being very clear, then please take it up with the Holy Spirit who inspired this, because that's why it's a little less clear than it should be. What I'm going to suggest is that what's happening here is, in fact, there's three voices. And I'm going to explain a little bit about these voices before I sort of get into the details. The first voice, I think, is Jeremiah the prophet. Jeremiah is weeping and brokenhearted because he loves the Israelites, he loves his fellow Jews, he loves Jerusalem. And he sees it is getting walloped, and he sees that they will not listen to what God has to say about warnings, will not seek comfort in God, and he is brokenhearted about it. The second voice is Israel. Israel is saying collectively, imagines if Israel were a person, this is what Israel would say. He says, Israel says, is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not in her? The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. They're complaining and saying, well, God, nobody saved us. But they're also saying in a cocksure kind of way, well, we've got a king, right? God made a promise to David many, many centuries ago that I will always be with you and your kingdom will last forever. Our king is here on the throne, so obviously we should be saved. You know, Babylon's threatening us, it's marching down, it's going to take everything away, they say, but our king's here, right? Same thing with the temple. God uh, uh, inspires Solomon to build a temple. We're told that God inhabits the temple with his people. So we've got God safely locked up in the temple. And God's not going to let the temple be destroyed, right? Isn't God in the midst of Zion? And if that's not good enough, they say we've really got all of our, our, our bases covered because we've made alliances with Egypt and other nations. And what would happen in the ancient world is that war didn't just happen. People lived in agricultural economy. They couldn't, you know, they didn't have refrigerators to keep their food. Kings went to war after the harvest was over. The harvest is gone. Then I can call up all of the troops and get them ready and arm them and send them off to a war. Because they didn't have a standing army the way that we do in Canada, what they had was conscription. All the peasants who work the fields, if they're taken up before harvest, means all the harvest goes to waste and everybody starves. What is Israel saying? Jeremiah is weeping and saying, return to the Lord and repent. And then Israel saying, well, we got the Lord locked up in the temple. He's fine. He's not going to worry about it. He's going to save us. And, you know, we've got these alliances with Egypt. They're going to come and save us when Babylon comes to destroy us. And then they're starting to dawn on them and saying, well, wait a second. The harvest passed and I don't hear any Egyptian chariots coming to rescue us. Then you've got the third voice. And the third voice is the voice of God. The voice says this. Why have they provoked me to anger with their images, with their foreign idols? So God's responding to them and saying, oh, you got me locked up in the temple, do you? You really trust me, do you? You really trust in, in the way that I've shown? Then why is it that instead of going to the temple, worshiping me and calling for my help, you've stuck the temple full of idols? 
You walk into the temple and you don't see uh, people worshiping God. You've got your little Baal altar. You've got your little, you know, Moloch altar. You've got all these different gods that you're worshiping. And you say out of one corner of your mouth that you trust me and the other corner of your mouth you don't. So I'm sorry, your actions speak louder than your words. You really don't trust me. Jeremiah is brokenhearted and he's quoting Israel and saying, I'm saying all of this and they just don't get it. And God is speaking and saying, these guys are saying all this stuff and they just don't get it. What is the brokenheartedness all about? It is about Jeremiah, God's messenger, and ultimately God himself, loving Israel, but brokenhearted because of what she's bringing on herself, and yet exasperated and frustrated because she just will not listen to the advice that would spare her her sorrow and her pain. Now that is an historic thing, and you can learn that as you're reading through Jeremiah, but I think if we look at this, I can't help but think how relevant it is when we speak about the church and about God's relationship to the church. Perhaps you've not had this experience, but I often have, at times where I just roll my eyes when I see the behavior of the church. Sometimes it's past historical stuff. When we've talked about Indian residential schools, as difficult as it was as culturally, the thing that shocked me the most, and I've often heard, is the number of times clergy and senior church leaders were actually actively abusing children story of, you know, across the board. I wish I could say it was some other denomination, but Anglican clergy who sexually abused children. Or I look, of course, at, at modern day, too, at the, at the, the revelations coming out of the Roman Catholic Church in the United States lately, and I'm shocked and scandalized. I've been reading a, a difficult book to read, but uh, um, it's called Christ's Body, Christ's Wounds. Roman Ca- assembled a bunch of uh, short stories, or true stories, from other Catholics about experience in the church where they've been hurt and some explanation about why they've stuck around, but they're harrowing stories about sometimes real abuse and sometimes just things that, you know, sadly, we've all come to expect sometimes from church. And there's a story about a woman who has lots of kids, right? And we probably know what the story's going to be, which is every time I come to church, everybody tells them to shut up and tells the children to sit down and be quiet, and, and everybody tells her by their actions she's just not welcome. You know, sadly, that has often happened in church. And I, of course, roll my eyes. It's my own fault, I suppose, for going on social media, but the way that Christians respond to people, it's like, oh, I'm going to forgive my leader, but I'm not going to forgive your leader. Or you're a Christian, uh, and so you're saying that Trump is like the new Messiah. And every time I hear something like that, I think to myself, uh, there's a couple of differences, just a few small differences between Trump and Jesus. I imagine you can name them. But of course, it happens all over the place. And, and sometimes, too, in our experiences in church. You know, maybe it's not happened to you, but my experience so often in the times where churches really get smack, smack, smack to each other, I don't think they tend to to be sometimes, but they don't tend to be over some profound moral issue. I've experienced that the biggest churches I've read about or seen and seen splits are people have fights about the music, fights about how to change the furnishing, fights about who's leading the kitchen. You think to yourself, you know... (laughs) Christians today in Syria are are experiencing a genocide. Christians in China are being crushed by their government and we're fighting about paper napkins. And yet we do. And so oftentimes you look at the church and you think to yourself, I wonder if Jesus himself is looking at the church in the way Jeremiah looked at Israel and saying the same thing. You're breaking my heart here. Do you not realize how many poor, needy, broken, lonely people there are in your community and you're fighting about something so stupid and making me look so terrible? But again, how easy it is to say, oh man, that church, church is bad, right? You know what's the hardest part is when I get up in the morning and I look in the mirror and then I think, pretty big gap between what I am and what I wish I could be. I mentioned way back in in, uh, 
in Easter. And I was applying for the military to become a chaplain as a reservist, which is still in the pipes. It's taken forever. But here's the thing that's actually, I thought, well, okay, maybe it's good. I'm going to have to do basic training. It's not going to be September. It'll probably have to be June. So I better get in shape. Got to eat better. Got to exercise more. And you get out of the shower in the morning, you look in the mirror and think, yeah, it's moving a little slow, right? <laughs> of course, that's silly. I mean, God you know, wants me to not die in basic training, but how I look, there's no way in in heaven, so don't worry about it. But what's most troubling is, is that when I metaphorically look at myself and my moral conduct, right? I think, okay, I'm, I'm absolutely going to give more time to my children. I'm going to be a lot more patient with them. And then about three seconds after they get up is the first time you blow up, right? Or you just look in your own life and just think so many of the times where you've experienced, you know what, I'm, 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 I was really petty in that argument. I couldn't let go. I'm going to change. And then what happens? You see something in the news or it reminds you of something and that old pettiness just comes right up again and ugh, frustrating. The gap between what I am and what I should be. And how often it is you look at that and I wonder, does Jesus say, Stephen, Stephen, how often have I spoken to you about this and I'm heartbroken because you don't listen to what I have to say or let my power work through you? And one of the sad facts about it is, is that we live in a world that has fallen. And even if you construct a little hut and go off in the woods and say, forget it, stop the world, I want to get off, you're going to experience disappointment with the world. The good news is, is that Jesus knows exactly what that is and Jesus himself experienced it and shows us how to deal with that disappointment. I mentioned about Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, and it's one of the most powerful passages in the scripture, and it happens in Matthew's gospel. Just before Jesus' crucifixion, he comes up to Jerusalem, and he weeps, and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that stones the prophets and kills those sent to you. How I long to gather you under my arm, into my arms like a, a, a mother hen gathers chicks under her wings, but you would not have it, and so now your house is left desolate. And yet, what does Jesus do? He doesn't sort of turn his donkey around and say, forget it, I'm not going here. Jesus marches right into Jerusalem, and he applies divine love to this community that cannot receive it. In fact, so much love that he pours out that he is willing to stand there to turn the other cheek while they murder him in the knowledge that it's only by the power of God, his grace, that dead, broken hearts can be resurrected. Jesus raises from the dead, and everything changes. Not that the world stops being a sorrowful place, but even the very band of people that gathered around him, the people who abandoned him, the people who denied him, the people that disappointed him and made him want to tear his hair out, these scared, frightened people see the resurrected Jesus, see the power of God working on a corpse. And they're transformed from being cowardly, weaselly, deceitful people into being people who are brave enough to go into the courts of Jerusalem, brave enough to go into the temple, brave enough to go to the corners of the earth to say Jesus is risen, even if it costs them their lives. What's the transformation? It's the power of God's grace and the power of Jesus' love. It was a costly love that cost Jesus his life and cost him suffering. But Jesus loved this world enough and loved his disciples and loved the Jerusalem he wept over enough to say it's worth the cost and I will love. I believe Jesus says the very same thing to the church, you know. He stands as he did for Jerusalem, and he says, Oh, church, oh, church throughout the world, uh, the church that proclaims love your enemies but can't get along with each other, the church that loves the poor but spends more money on its coffee hour than it does in helping outreach, the church that so often says, You must agree with me on all political matters instead of saying, Come, let us worship the Lord who loves people of different political stripes, you who make me want to tear my hair out. Let me gather you into my arms. 
and let the divine love be poured out on you so that you might find transformation as possible. Even though your hearts may be dark, they may even seem like your hearts and their loving nature is dead. I've come to resurrect those hearts and help them to love in the way that it should love. And Jesus says to me, Stephen, Stephen, how often I told you to preach the word of God, but instead of simply, uh, instead of uh, uh, speaking it and taking it to heart, you speak it and then don't listen to it yourself in your private life. But what does he say? I died for you too. Accept my love, accept my grace, allow your, my grace to work through you, and you can find that some of these things you struggle with so deeply, by humbling yourself and bowing the knee, you can find that you actually have power outside of yourself to change. He says that to all of us when we're frustrated, angry at ourselves, having a hard time loving ourselves. Jesus says, yeah, I love you. Yeah, you break my heart many times. But I love you with the same love that I love Jerusalem, a love that is strong enough to make sacrifices, a love that is strong enough to walk with you in those troubling times, and a love that is strong enough to transform you if you want it. So where does that leave us when we look at places like Jeremiah? I mentioned the book that I had uh, been reading, and, and one of the, the quotes that was really great from this book I wanted to share with you, because I think it really says a lot about what we're called to do in response to God's love. This is a quote from Flannery O'Connor, who is a Roman Catholic writer who died tragically. She, she had lupus, and so a lot of her life was really painful. She died fairly young in the 1960s, but a fantastic writer. She said this, The only thing that makes the church endurable is that it is somehow the body of Christ and that on this we are fed. It seems to be a fact that you have to suffer as much from the church as for it. But if you believe in the divinity of Christ, you have to cherish the world at the same time you struggle to endure it. That is our calling. You want to make a difference in this world, you want your heart to change, you want to make great leaps from where you are to where you should be, then it means not only accepting the love of Christ and absorbing it, it means allowing his attitude and his grace to transform you so that you start loving the people and the institutions and the world around you in the way that he does, and that's a costly kind of love. You have to love Canada, even though in an electoral season I find it extraordinarily frustrating. But what can you do? You can look at the neighborhood and the community around you, and you can say, I may not have the power to change parliament, but what do I have the power to make a difference in? I have the power to make a difference in my neighborhood, the school, the soccer league my kids are part of, if I allow Christ's love to work through me, to love people who make me want to scream and tear my hair out. Because the application of Christ's love in these situations can change them in miraculous ways, even while we scream. And the same is true for the church. I know very well that, that many of you will be here today having been hurt by the church in bad ways. Maybe you're disappointed by this church in lots of ways or in me. It's going to happen. The church is full of people who are like anybody else, who have mistakes, and sometimes you want to strangle. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, love this church that I struggle with. Love this church that I often have to rebuke because it is only by allowing my love through you to love those who don't seem very lovable that people can be changed and transformed into something great. This church will be more the church that Jesus wants it to be. If you take responsibility and say, Jesus, I will love the church that makes me crazy, that makes me angry, that makes me sorrowful. I will love it like you call me to love it because it's only by being loved with a Christ-like love that the church will be transformed in what it's meant to be. And that finally comes down to you and me. Let Jesus love you. Believe that he loves you. Believe that, yes, he's sorrowful, but believe that he loves you enough to give you the courage to love yourself even when you cause yourself sorrow. You want to be a better person? You want to be a person who looks in the mirror and says, my uh, gosh, I'm really happy with the growth that I've seen. 
And look at yourself through Jesus' eyes and say, what does he really think of me? Does he look at the out-of-shape guy who can't get his act together and, uh, and feel despair? No. Instead, he looks at a person who, like every one of his sheep, is flawed and says, I still love you. There's still a place in your flock. Just start listening to me a little bit more, and you will find you start making progress in those parts of your life that you really need to make progress in. You want to learn a lesson from Jeremiah? It's okay to be sad. Don't hide it. Want to learn a lesson from Jeremiah and living in a troubled world? Remember that Jesus loved a troubled world, but he still made a difference in the lives of those who were willing to listen to his voice by applying divine love, and you do the same. Do the same in your church, and do the same to yourself. And you'll be amazed at the great things God can do through little old you and little old me.